This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, you're listening to Beyond the Ballot Box with me, Dafrin Johan. Why is Najib still so popular? This is a question that has boggled and fascinated many Malaysians since Abno Barisa National's defeat in 2018. I mean, how did the former Prime Minister, Najib Razak, rehabilitate his image and preserve his relevance within the political sphere despite being plagued by numerous corruption scandals and charges? Recently, Dr. Benjamin Lowe, Vilachini Somaya and Sarah Ali wrote a paper titled Shame and Shamelessness, Changing Discourses in Najib Razak's Social Media Campaign. It is a quick and fascinating read into the strategies deployed by Najib to paint himself as a good man wronged by the system. Benjamin joins me on the show today to discuss this. Welcome to the show, Ben. How are you? Hi, thank you so much, Dashran, for having me. All right. Um, before we dissect um, the meat of your paper, let's, let's talk about you know, what inspired you, Ben, to, to write this paper in the first place. All right. So I'm a media scholar by trading and also I'm a practicing lecturer. So that's the area of research that I work on. And I've been particularly focused on sort of like the areas in which um, uh, politicians engage in the use of social media. And in Malaysia, social media usage by politicians tends to be quite formulaic. It's very similar. They often just talk about their exploits. They sometimes talk about policies that they're working on. But for the most part, it's pretty uh, standard and uniform across the board, essentially. Uh, there are some politicians who do talk about, like, you know, their own personality and to humanize them to a certain extent. But it's usually, again, very common, nothing too interesting. Now, uh, so uh, the paper was focusing on the Malu Apa Bosco campaign by uh, Najib and that campaign really stood out from the rest of all the other kinds of uh, political campaigns that we see on social media. And so uh, together with my collaborators, uh, sort of like uh, Dr. Vilashini Somia and also uh, Sarah Ali, who's an up and coming uh, sort of like PhD uh, student at the moment, uh, we sort of like wanted to sort of examine how exactly is the rhetoric of this campaign. Because even though this campaign started in 2019 and pretty much wrapped up by the end, it was very successful in sort of rehabilitating uh, our former prime minister's uh, image as well. And it did so in a lot of very ingenious ways. Absolutely. Um, when we think about the Malu Upper Bosco campaign, right, it's indeed perhaps, you know, one of the most popular uh, and, and successful political campaigns, in perhaps of the decade or even the entire Malaysian uh, political history, right? Because we, we are talking about, you know, even going, you know, every anybody, even people who have no clue about politics, people who don't pay attention and don't yell on Twitter every day day, you know, and, and things like that about politics, they know Malu Upper Bosco, it's such, a, it's such a tagline. Now, remind us again about the origins of the Malu Upper Bosco campaign. When and why did Najib launch this campaign? Okay, so the campaign essentially started in January 2019. And this was, of course, uh, the first time that uh, Najib actually came back into the public eye because uh, just six months before that, he had lost the, the general elections of 24, uh, 2018. The first time the uh, BN coalition was out of government, uh, he had to resign. And then after that, a slew of cases started to come up against him. You know, many of his luxury items were seized, his properties were raided. Uh, and then, of 
of course, there was the the sort of like the tip of their entire sort of like uh, shameful display was when he had that incredibly disastrous interview with Al Jazeera, where right. that really uh, was like this is not the image of a person that was once prime minister of a of a middle income country. Essentially, you know, it was incredibly embarrassing for him. And from that point onwards, he sort of like retreated from the public eye and started to focus mostly uh, on just posting things on social media. You know, a lot of his engagements with politics, with uh, sort of issues of the day, even about his own cases as well, were done in social media with him not appearing in the public. Now, uh, in his big public appearance that appeared in early January, it was a meet and greet event that he organized, that his well, his team organized, and he essentially uh, did uh, appear, and he basically was wearing uh, a hoodie and some jeans, again very <laughs> casual with some sneakers, and then basically posed on sitting on top of a, a Honda Cup type motorcycle or Cup Chai here in Malaysia, and that was when the and together they put the tagline Malu Apa Bosku, and that was really the start of his campaign and uh, sort of like the attempt to sort of humanize and to sort of like rebrand Najib as a man of the people rather than somebody who is from the political elite of the country. And I think, you know, one thing we can say about Najib is that, uh, you know, like him or hate him, he has used social media highly effectively, so much so that even when he went to prison, his social media, you know, pages still run, which is a problem in and of itself. But but even Najib understands and how important social media is to his brand, to his pers- persona, to his uh, the, the, the persona that he has painted in politics. In your paper, Ben, you talked about how Najib used social media both as a shield and also a weapon. What do you mean by this? Okay, thank you. So, yes, uh, when I say he used social media, the social media was sort of the means of doing it. Specifically, he used shame as both the shield and the weapon. And what I mean by shame, essentially, is that in contemporary politics around the world, shame is often used as a measure of trying to keep politicians accountable. The idea here is that if you are as a politician because you are a public figure and you sort of have to project this image of being ethical, being good, and having certain positive values as well, shame is a very useful tool to keep these politicians in check. You know, you don't engage in unethical behaviours or uh, sort of like immoral acts and things like that. So whenever a politician is found to be doing these things, it would bring great shame upon them and most politicians would often either uh, retreat from the public eye or resign from the positions essentially. So it's a very, very effective tool to make sure that, to keep politicians honest. Now, with Najib and going into 2019, he was again a fallen prime minister, had lost a major election, biggest upset for for his uh, party, essentially. Uh, he was also embroiled in a lot of corruption cases, many of which, and also a lot of these um, issues of his decadent lifestyle started to come to light as well. So all of these things brought great shame upon him. And that's where the Malu Apa Bosku campaign, which again translated to what's, uh, why do you feel shame, my friend or my boss, basically. And that was sort of the way of him trying to reclaim the element of shame by engaging in shamelessness to a certain extent. And he did so essentially by uh, sort of like framing the entire discourse of his campaign uh, by saying that, yes, I lost the election. Yes, I've been, uh, I have been put through all of these things. I'm a downfallen character. I'm downtrodden now at this point. I've lost everything. Uh, but I also am aware that I'm now in a very shameful position. But the way that he paints it is that he claims that he's, he's, been, sh- he's, in a sh- he's been ashamed, but he never takes responsibility 
responsibility for that shame essentially. He always uh, puts it that, oh, it's because I was actually misled. You know, it's because the at the time, the PH propaganda machine was so strong. It was so powerful. It conjured all these trumped up charges against me and they're going through with it right now. So I'm actually just the victim here essentially. And the way that he used that essentially was that he tried sort of like linked the, his own uh, experiences with that of the Mat Rempit community in Malaysia. So again, him wearing that hoodie, that jeans, and also sitting on that Kapchai motorcycle was meant to conjure affinities with the uh, Mat Rempit community. So if you're not familiar with the term, Mat Rempit often refers to uh, sort of like this urban Malay youths in Malaysia who basically go around... Um, who make use of these Kapchai motorcycles. And more often than not, there's often very, very strong stereotypes or negative stigmas about uh, this community. Basically, they're seen as youths who are unapplied, they are unmotivated, they are sometimes seen as lazy, they don't want to get proper jobs, all they do is become delivery riders and whatnot. And again, he sort of paints this image that this community is actually very hardworking, very strong, and they've been given these very negative stereotypes that actually assume that they're lazy, when actually, they, he argues that they are actually very um, sort of like hardworking they are contributing members to society and he's right in that sense but by sort of like associating that you are that there is this misconception of people like this that that misconception has also been applied to him as well right yes. okay so that's very fascinating right because I, you also used the word downtrodden earlier and that's how Najib painted himself now I'm wondering um, you know that tells me that you know when it comes to shame Najib didn't paint himself as, yes, I did the same shameful act, so what, I am above it, rather than, uh, you know, rather he said, we are we are all human, we all do shameful acts, um, you know, so, you know, we can all forgive each other. Is, is that more or less his, his approach? He, did he try to paint himself as above these acts of shame, above, you know, being shamed, like, like you know, I can do this, so what? He, okay. So the way that we found in the paper was that he made it look as though I am in this shameful position because this egregious party did these bad things right. towards me. And he also then extends it that, oh, for all of you people, in particular the Malay community of Malaysia, you you had mistakenly voted PH in because of their lies, their slander, their fake promises and things like that. So you too can be forgiven for having been put in this ashamed position. So he likes to draw those parallels and that was very effective. So it's essentially saying that actually BN should have been in power. We were doing things right. It's just that, you know, the lies were so powerful and they, they killed my career. They've affected you. You're now with a government that you don't want and instead let's forgive each other because we were both victims in this case. So it's a very interesting approach. You know, it's very different than what you always expect with a sort of like, a, you know, a, a strongman type politician. It's the exact opposite of what you would be expe expecting. Right. I want to get into the strongman aspect of it um, a little bit later because I, I feel like this is very fascinating, the, the parallels that can be drawn with some of the more popular strongmen around the world. But, you know, when it comes to Najib rebranding himself, rehabilitating uh, his image, what are the main approaches that Najib took? So the Malu Appa Bosku campaign uh, was basically comprised of a series of, uh, the way that we ran our analysis is that we just focused primarily on Facebook. Uh, that was the main uh, sort of like uh, medium that he, that the campaign used as well. And a lot of the posts basically just used either the term Malu Appa Bosku or the hashtag Malu Appa Bosku. And we just focused exclusively on that. And I think we ended up with about 40 posts just from looking at 
ninety nine sorry nine months worth of data, and essentially it was comprised of about three types of articles, uh, three types of posts. So the first post, of course, would be things that um, he's sort of like um, these are the very human type posts. These are the ones that gain the most engagement. It's always be things that just sort of like humanize Najib. You know, the most popular one, of course, is when he talked about how he invited Malaysia to take him as their Valentine during Valentine's Day. It's a very simple message, nothing too um, too. Uh, complex about it, just a couple of lines. Right. Then you also have a few where he sort of engages in discussing about politics, you know, and he uses Malwapa to often to, and this is where he uses it as a weapon, you know, he would often attack uh, sort of like um, uh, PH politicians and sort of argue that, oh, these are things that you accuse my government of doing and you're doing the same thing. So he used it as a as a, as a a weapon in that sense, you know, saying that you claim that I have a shame, but you should have shame as well, that kind of thing. And then the last one, of course, would be just to show that he has public support. You know, he would have uh, sort of like posts where he's doing uh, public appearances. He's showing that people are supporting him in different ways. At one point, he was featured in a music video about Bosco and things like that. So these are sort of like the kinds of uh, article uh, post that he was basically put to sort of address that and it was often designed to sort of make him seem like a man of the people to a certain extent Speaking of man of the people now you touched on this um, a little bit earlier you know this, this Kapchai motorcycles um, you know trying to um, paint himself as someone that is you know relatable with the, the, the Malay underclass and, and so on and so forth um, can you expand on this um you know, a little bit. Because I, I think, you know, one of the things you brought up very interestingly is how Najib used um, poor class consciousness among the Malaysian masses to his advantage. Yes, we definitely do have very, very poor class consciousness simply because a lot of the way that we view differences or societal differences, you know, differences in the structures of society is based around racial uh, racial differences. And the thing is, when you just look based on racial differences, uh, the most common thing that happens in Malaysia is that people view, uh, people assign a certain uh, class to certain races as a whole, you know, ignoring the actual class differences within that race. So even though the campaign was primarily focused at the sort of like the, as you mentioned, the Malay underclass or the Malay uh, working class, essentially, it resonated far beyond that because it started to just become this idea that the the messaging of how, you know, Malays as a whole voted wrongly or were misled by PH extended beyond just the working class. So the working class was more about to sort of like just put him at their level. He was basically uh, adopting their shame as his own to a certain extent or trying to draw that affinity there. But in terms of uh, building on some sort of political awareness, he wanted to just say that the Malay uh, community as a whole was misled. And that resonated with a lot of middle-class Malays in particular, which again, uh, he didn't try to draw any parallels with any of that. He just sort of presented that the Malay community needs to move in this direction, ignoring the, the, the class differences as a result of that. And again, uh, Najib himself is a former, he's a son of a former prime minister. He's, in, he's basically a political blue blood, very well connected, very well educated. And the way that he makes these posts also was in a very, was using a lot of colloquial terms, a lot of very informal language, which again, you don't normally see from uh, Malaysian politicians as well. So all of this, of course, was to make him more relatable to the average person on the street. On the show with me today is Dr. Benjamin Lowe, co-author of Shame and Shamelessness, Changing Discourses in Najib Razak's social media campaign. After the break, we continue our discussion on how Najib rehabilitated his image. Keep it here on Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Beyond the Ballot Box. I'm Dr. Johan, and on the show with me today is Dr. Benjamin Lowe, 
He's the co-author of Shame and Shamelessness, Changing Discourses in Najib Razak's Social Media Campaign. This paper is also authored by Vilashani Somaya and Sarah Ali. So, Ben, one of the things that is very fascinating about this whole entire saga is that he is someone that right now where we are today, um, someone who is officially, by legal terms, you know, um, guilty of corruption, he is in prison, and so on and so forth. Um, but yet, he finds a way to humanise himself, He even until today. And a lot of this, again, ties back to the campaign that you studied, which is the Malu Upper Bosco um, campaign. How did Najib humanise himself despite the barrage of corruption charges, protests, clown drawings? How did he do this? I think, going back to what I mentioned earlier, I think it's just because he presented himself as a human being first rather than a politician. And again, if you look at the way that politicians used to present themselves on social media in that that time, uh, a lot of it was always that this is a politician that's either uh, trying to pander to a, a, a common audience and to the average person on the street, or they're doing it with a certain strategic goal in mind. It it's always feels very disingenuous. It doesn't feel authentic. And the way that Najib did it was that just by keeping things simple, and again, um, to take note, right, that during this era, like it, things have changed quite a bit ever since we had the, the new coalition government, but we'll get to that later. Right. Uh, but the idea here is that up until this point, right, Malaysian politics was very, very much about bravado, about machismo. This whole idea that as a politician, you are always seen as a person that is always correct. You're always right. You're an authority on everything, regardless of your actual expertise. And you never ever do sort of like, uh, you never be apologetic about anything. That was really one of the key differences. If you look through the history of our politicians, many of them, almost all of them never ever apologized across whether they were you know, uh, pro-government or whether they were opposition. Apologies were always seen as a huge sign of weakness. And if anybody ever did apologize, it's always, um, uh, it's always, uh, filled with tons of caveats and like sort of like qualifiers to sort of say that it's not really an apology or it's not really my fault. And if somebody does give a wholehearted apology, it's often a sign that, oh, they're going to fade away into the public, into the background, essentially. Right. That's what's expected. But here you have Najib, who is, for all intents and purposes, fighting for political survival, and he's incredibly down to earth, you know. Even when there were moments like one key uh, uh, sort of like Malu Apa Bosku post that really did very well was when I think um, there was this questions that came about about whether he got his degree legally or not uh, whether he bought his degree and he just basically posted a photo of himself at his graduation and, and then he was saying that oh for those of you saying that I didn't graduate I mean I'm not very happy that because look at the picture I look like a clown my hair is really unkept and things like that and for a lot of people it's like okay yes he defended himself but he also was incredibly candid he was very humble he really did not take himself seriously and it was, even though he was being attacked he was not on the offensive he didn't sort of like take things further. And one of the things that I do want to give credit to Malu Apa Bosco is that he never engaged in any sort of like very very clear like racial tensions, racial divisions in these posts. It was all usually very either whole, they were either wholesome or they're very positive in nature. So that was, that was sort of like one of the ways that it probably resonated with a lot of people as a result of that. Now, what I find very interesting is, you know, you, you point this out in your paper where, you know, while there are similarities and parallels that can be drawn between the likes of Donald Trump and Najib, they also take entirely different approaches when it comes to their messaging. 
And, and this is very fascinating, right? Because people often like to compare one right-wing leader with another right-wing leader in another part of the world. Talk to me about their differences in their approaches. Okay, so Donald Trump uh, has been widely attributed for coming up with, or rather, uh, creating this sort of like new way of engaging people, which some call just call Trumpism, but essentially it's a form of right-wing populism. You know, the idea here is that you engage with a certain community and or, which are often conservative. And the way that he did it was that he actually used shame as well. But the way that Donald Trump engaged with the, with the use of shame was that he actually brought up the shame within his followers, his base essentially. So he would highlight that, you know, oh, uh, for him, the base that he, cons- that he was trying to uh, pander to essentially were uh, sort of like this... Um, uh, white male conservatives who were excluded or feel or starting to feel disenfranchised as a result of growing liberal progressive politics in America, essentially saying that, you know, even you guys are supposed to have privilege, but you don't get, get any of those benefits as well. And he sort of like uses that to en- to sort of like bolster his, his, his support and basically saying that you guys should be getting all of these things. You're in a horrible, shameful position. I will help you break out of that. Essentially, look right. at me. I'm so successful. That kind of thing. So he's sort of using the, the shame to as a fuel for his own processes and a lot of right-wing leaders are doing that essentially they're saying that uh, for so long conservatives have been forced to take the back seat now is the time to come back and rise and i will help you do that uh najib on the other hand goes the complete opposite route again right. using shame but as as i said before you know he's sort of like focusing on the fact that i have a lot of shame you guys also have a lot of shame we share this shame together and let us both work together to become stronger as a result of that. We will attack people. But remember, I'm now part of you. So Trump is very clear that I'm like the best of you. I'm like the best case. I'm the only one who can fight for you. But Najib is very, very different in that sense. You know, it's the exact opposite. So it's a very, very interesting approach. And again, very, very successful. Absolutely. And, you know, on that same note, right, um, Najib, like, again, we, we touched on this a little bit, but I want to get a little bit deeper into it. And, you know, Najib is very different from the hyper-masculine right-wing leaders of the world as well. We're talking about the likes of, let's say, Putin from Russia, Bolsonaro from Brazil, and, and all of that. These guys are very non-apologetic. They are very my way or the highway kind of thing. Um, in fact, they, they are more akin, I mean, I'm not talking about in terms of policy, but in terms of their, their iron fist, they are more like Tun Dr. Mahade of, of the old. Najib, doesn't take that 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 approach, right? He's quite different from them. Was this a, a calculated move on Najib's hand to be more humble in that sense? Yeah, definitely. You know, before I mean, before GE14's elections, you no know, Najib like many of his predecessors before, followed the typical AMNO leader playbook. You know, uh, you are the best at everything. You need to gov- you need to governize your your base as much as possible, and basically just show that you are the only person, or rather, your party is the only party that has the right to govern the country. That's always been the way that they approach every campaign. Now, to be fair, uh, even going into G fourteen, I think Najib sort of knew that he already was on the on sort of like on a weaker foot essentially because there was actually one set of of, um, sort of like um, um, advertising campaigns where he, there was one very key note quote that he made that again you never ever see within Malaysia politics where he actually just says that um, I can't remember the exact line but it was something along the lines of you know I'm only human I make mistakes as well and so but I promise that I will do better again that sort of admission of some 
again, non-specific form. It's always he's apologetic about something, but never specific about what he's apologetic for. And that really was very, very unusual. Now, some would argue that that possibly means that, oh, he admits that he's weak. And as a result of that, that's why people moved away from voting them in. But again, it sort of just highlights that maybe that was something that he had planned beforehand. But it was really only... G14 and later that he sort of adopted this more humble approach because again in the in 2018 after losing he did try to sort of like stand up and show that he is powerful but all those appearances didn't really do much as well and probably that's why after strategic discuss discussion this was the approach that he was going for as a result of that I'm wondering if this um, quote unquote humble approach um, is you know deployed because of the Malaysian culture that is widely seen to be um, bersopan, sometimes, um, you know, can be a little bit feudal, as people will say, don't talk back against your leaders. Um, you know, everybody, you know, put yourself down, you know, be humble, um, regardless of, you know, what what the situation is. But and then, you know, just to argue with my own self, I'm wondering, um, Tun Dr. Mahdi, as I brought up, was completely different. And you also see popular politicians within the Malaysian um, political landscape, um, like, let's say, uh, uh, Tajuddin, for example, who is that very brash, you know, um, they're going to yell at you in, in parliament, they're going to be sexist, they're going to be misogynist and, and all these kinds of things. So what what was special about Najib's strategy? Why did he decide to go in this direction? Uh, yeah, you bring up a very interesting point, you know, bersopan or, mm-hmm. you know, politeness, essentially. Yeah. That is definitely something that does sort of like exist in, is very strong in Malaysian society. But if you look at our politics, you probably don't think that that's too much because you notice that a lot of our male politicians especially are very brash, they're very obnoxious, mm-hmm. very un, very unpolite in that sense. Right. And But the thing is, there is a certain sense of civility that still is present even in the politics. You know, there are certain things you don't talk about, certain issues you don't address. And if so, you get admonished or take talk. I mean, Tajuddin did a lot of faux pas and it did sort of like um, affect his position eventually. So it's not to say that he got away scot-free. Right. Uh, but one of the interesting things about that, and I think I want to go back go back to, you know, the idea of the term Bosku itself. So Bosku, uh, for those of you who aren't, who aren't familiar, is actually a term that comes from Sabah. It's a term that is actually used. So in a certain sense, he even appropriated this term as well. And I think according to uh, Dr. Trixie Tangit from uh, University of Malaysia Sabah, she talked about how, you know, the term Bosku is actually used, and we talk about this in our paper, uh, is actually used in Sabah by different groups of people. Uh, it's often used as a way of saying that, oh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to crack a joke about my boss or I'm trying to show deference towards my superiors and things like that. It's either right. within the Sabah indigenous community or amongst the Indonesian foreign migrant community, uh, foreign labor community. But the idea here is that it's a term that basically either has a playful uh, engagement or a more deferential engagement towards somebody who's higher in rank towards you. And I think, again, Najib is sort of like appropriating, appropriated that term essentially for himself to sort of, as in simple shorthand, basically say that I'm actually of lower rank now. I'm not the the prime minister. I'm just somebody who that you, who used to be in charge, but I'm no longer in charge. I'm prob- I'm lower or probably the same rank as you folks at the bottom. And I think that speaks a lot of volumes as a result of that. Now, back to the issue of politeness. I think one thing, as I mentioned before, you know, shame is a very, very important tool for how we uh, sort of like keep our politicians accountable. The idea here is that if you have been, if something shameful happens to you, you have a sex scandal, you have a huge corruption case, you're just expected to apologize and disappear or accept your punishment. Right. But with Najib, he sort of like says, okay, I'm in this shame, again, doesn't actually accept any responsibility. 
but just continues going on. And I think for a lot of politicians, especially, they don't know how to deal with that. Because if you if you, if you use the 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 superior the ultimate like political weapon of shame and you shame this person tremendously and also I mean, you remember, you know, when when Najib fell from grace, it wasn't just that, you know, he was considered to be corrupt, he was considered to be a bad leader. He was also considered to be less of a man, you know. A lot of the earlier complaints that we saw, I mean, even before G fourteen was that um they tended to sort of like view Najib as less like less masculine because it was seen that his wife was the the sort of like the main uh, sort of like decision maker in the house to a certain right. extent. There were all sorts of jokes about who wears the pants and yes. so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, and he basically just sort of like ignored all of that and just said that yeah, I'm I am in a shameful position. What more do you want? And I think our politicians just did not know how to deal with it, which is why it was so difficult for for any of them to sort of like counter a lot of things that he talked about because if they did attack him and he could very easily just say that your attack because whatever attacks that politicians do against him looks as though they're punching down and punching down is even more shameful than anything else so again he made everybody just feel very very uncomfortable and it was very effective as a result of that and how did the malu apu bosco campaign distract najib uh, distract najib's supporters uh, more specifically from his failings Okay, so the way that he did it, and I'm, I'm going to talk about the current failings at the time of the campaign, which is right. basically his ongoing um, 1MDB trials, essentially. And the way that he did it, right, was that whenever any post that he made, which featured the hashtag of Maluapa Bosku or even the phrase Maluapa Bosku, they would never ever mention either 1MDB or any of his corruption trial cases. And if you followed uh, Najib's uh, Facebook uh, page at the time, you'll notice that he posted every day. Like in a week, maybe like 60-70% of the posts will be about his corruption case and then uh, the rest will be about every random other things. And Maluapa Bosco will tended to be in those miscellaneous type of posts. But all the Maluapa Bosco campaign posts were either, like I said, they didn't really engage with politics as much unless it was meant to sort of highlight shame of certain politicians. But it was mostly just about talking about how people support him, uh, his humanizing him in that sense. And if you just look up the, the hashtag Maluapa Bosco, you'll notice that there is practically zero mention of 1MDB or any of his corruption trials, which essentially is that if you just follow that part about his page, you will not know that he's embroiled in any sort of controversy. So, so to an extent, that was what it was supposed to to do and I guess it was successful in that regard. Um, you talk about how Najib always, you know, in his post and all, he shows how he has a lot of support, and I think that is very interesting because um, even recently, um, as we you know head, headed towards um, the, the elections prior to to GE fifteen, the state elections and what not, when Najib was still campaigning, there were a lot of these videos circulating where you know people are saying like Malu Apu Bosco and all, and then you'll have other people like no no no, this is the old one, he doesn't have that that kind of support and, and things like that. From a communications perspective, tell me why is it important from a communication messaging. Perspective, perspective to convince people that you have support through videos or whatever, even when you may not have that in reality? It's a very simple answer, you know. Online social media support it's very difficult to determine whether it's authentic or not. Right. You know, you know, Malaysia, of course, being the cyber trooper haven of the world, essentially, mm-hmm. you know, nothing you can take at face value. <laughs> you know, you can look, you can see even like even uh, Najib's Facebook pages. You know, whenever he used to make posts, he'd be at minimum hundred thousand, ten thousand 
like likes and things like right. that. But again, none of that translates to because again, you could probably just be ten people liking it with a, with a thousand thousand accounts and things like that. But when you do things on the ground, those things either are more difficult to replicate or more difficult to sort of like fake it in that sense. And even if you did, uh, quite a bit of money is required to do that to a certain extent. So. At the very least, even if you did need a lot of money, uh, that's still something that is physical, that people will have a harder time to dispute in that sense. Which is why uh, whenever you see talks about how all these big crowds were following uh, Najib around during the, the, the state election, camp, the by-election camp, tr- campaign trails, you're always going to see it's like some opposition or well, uh, some the opposing um, uh, sort of like political uh, cyber troopers who will try to share that, oh, these are, these are the handouts that were given to right. show their support and things like that. So again, whether, again, uh, we've reached a point where both of these things are highly polemic anyway. So if people want to believe that it's real, it's going to be real for them. And people want to believe it's fake, will believe that it's fake. So um, as a communication scholar, that kind of thing is only useful Again, uh, contemporary political communication is not focused on trying to, uh, I mean, based on current political communication uh, sort of like research, political communication is not focused on changing people's political allegiances because that is incredibly difficult to do. It's just focusing on entrenching your current uh, base of supporters and hopefully getting a few people on the fence to join your side. But in terms of getting like like the diehards from the other side to suddenly like you, that is always seen as near impossible essentially. So the goal was to just sort of like galvanize the supporters and hopefully pick a few people on who are sitting on the fence. Now, you know, you, you did this research um, during the, the after the, the Malo Upper Bosco campaign, which was 2019, 2018, 20, 2019, 2020, um, around that period. Um, you know, the, the campaign is sort of gone, although the tagline has, has stayed with him uh, until now. Looking at where we are today, a couple of years removed from the campaign, has Najib's Malu Upper Bosco sort of to the test of time in terms of his popularity. Is it still popular, as popular as you perhaps noted during the height of his campaign? Well, I to be honest, I have not really been monitoring mm-hmm. his social media that much. But I think ever since he was finally incarcerated, his... Uh, presence and his support has drastically dropped as a result of that. You know, again, uh, when you're finally behind in prison, you know, things can shift quite dramatically and I think they've done so for him. Again, not I have not done enough current research to really tell you whether that has translated into actual uh, drop in support. But, you know, we've been looking at certain um, like uh, surveys that were done, I think, in the run-up to GE15. I don't think we, I haven't seen any new one where he was still considered to be a viable prime minister candidate for some reason, in, despite being behind bars, right. essentially. So, he still has some popularity. Now, to get a full-size figure, I I don't think we'll ever get that in reality, you know, because that's the nature of, of how public support works in this country, you know. you you It's very difficult to get the accurate number in that sense, but uh, I would say that it has definitely dropped them before. Um, he's, he's definitely been, uh, his way of engaging in social media has also changed as a result of that as well. It's a lot more different. And one of the things that I would say is the enduring uh, legacy of Malu Appa is that it sort of like softened up our politics to a certain extent. And I would say that, you know, now looking back in hindsight, you know, if you look at the the that little tumultuous period right after the elections where you know we were trying to figure out the coalition government, and one of the things that I thought was really um very striking was suddenly you had all these political stalwarts who had been in power for so long suddenly offering their completely um 
you could even argue that seem authentic apologies and wholehearted uh, requests for forgiveness from aggrieved parties, essentially. You know, and they're asking them from their longtime political nemeses. And it was incredibly, it was very bizarre. And I think that, you know, something like, some, if we didn't have a campaign like Malopa Bosco that sort of like made politicians rethink the whole idea of how shame works, suddenly that became a lot more acceptable that, oh, I don't have to project this image that I am infallible, that I am perfect, that everything I've done was in the interest of the people and I was never wrong. And suddenly that became palatable for politicians. So now... This might be giving too much credit, but more so I give credit to his team for coming up with the idea as well. But I think the fact that we actually have a coalition government now that is somewhat functioning and you can sort of see a lot of the weird spinning that is happening between the different political groups who are trying to sort of like argue that I'm not actually compromising, I'm not doing all of these things, when in fact they are all compromising because it is a compromise situation. And yeah, it's something that we never really would have expected to see but because Maluapa happened, that was now something that we have accepted to become part of our political space. And on that note, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. All right. Thank you so much for having me. That was Benjamin Lowe, co-author of Shame and Shamelessness, Changing Discourses in Najib Razak's Social Media Campaign. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check out a podcast on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcast from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Beyond the Ballot Box, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.